This is the Payback Time Podcast, where we interview driven individuals who have achieved or are well on their way to achieving financial freedom. We break down the steps required to generate leveraged income, including but not limited to stock investing, online business, traditional business, and real estate. Each episode breaks down the mistakes made, victories achieved, and the overall journey that led them to where they are today. Sean Tepper is your host, and here is today's episode. My next guest is a really sharp consultant. He's going to talk about his journey from leaving the corporate world to creating his own consulting business. And we're going to dive into 2019 where he absolutely blew up his revenues, just took him through the roof by making changes to how he sells, how he consults, and how he charges his clients. I got to tell you, some of these strategies are super creative. I've never even thought of them. Um, And I've been in the consulting world, but I think you guys are going to learn a lot. He also establishes leveraged income by, in very select cases, he will do consulting for a business, specifically an online business, in exchange for equity. This way, as the business grows, he's earning residual income. Please welcome Ryan Mahaffey. Ryan, how's it going? Good, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely glad you can join me. So we'll start things off with your backstory. If you could take a minute or so and give the audience your career backstory. Yeah, totally. So I grew up, uh, grew up right between Chicago and Milwaukee, um, right on the Illinois Wisconsin border. Went to school at Marquette, uh, right in downtown Milwaukee there. Studied, started with international business and finance. I like to say I got a little bit of, of finance to be dangerous, but not enough to want to go into finance full time and then switch <laughs> to marketing. Um, sure. Spent some time with Milwaukee Bucks doing some game day marketing stuff. Spent time with uh, Northwestern Mutual as a financial advisor. Uh, did some product line engineering support stuff at Harley Davidson. Helped run a digital marketing agency. And then went to Red Bull Energy Drink and was there for about three and a half years doing uh, everything from business analytics to event management to launched a video game to national account nice. management kind of at the end. Ton of fun. Left that in 2015. And uh, kind of started up my consulting business, our practice in uh, June of 2016 uh, with one client, moved kind of through that, March 2018, decided to kind of full on do the consulting thing with uh, more than just one client. And then have had um, somewhere around 40 clients at this point over the past several years. And uh, March, this past March, we rebranded uh, to Feast Over Famine and um, are just kind of rolling and having a ton of fun with it. Great overview. Appreciate the timeline layout. So let's go back to 2015. You're at Red Bull three years. And when did you start building the business plan to start your own consulting practice? Yeah. So kind of a little bit of my backstory is this um, social impact, social enterprise, businesses, mission kind of work. I took a trip to India when I was in college and um, when I was with Marquette. Marquette's really big Jesuit institution, big on Mm -hmm. social justice. And um, just kind of fell in love with the idea of like melding business and mission and kind of using that for social good. Um, at that nice. point, didn't really have like a, what I call like a theology of martyrdom or a philosophy of martyrdom where you say, look, there's a higher power or something in me or something bigger than what's right in front of me that says to sacrifice. I didn't really have that developed yet. So I went on in my career. Um, I remember being in India saying, I want to do this every day of the rest of my life. And, uh, but thinking like, I don't have money to pay my rent this month. And I just want to like go make a million dollars by the time I'm 35. And then I'll just do this forever. Uh, as like a, you know, 22 year old, uh, sure. kind of not 
figuring life out yet. Um, so kind of fast forward, um, a little bit to, you know, 2015, um, I just kind of had a lot of change in my life happen over those few years and just kind of started to develop that in me to say, you know, and I don't really know if this is where I want to be. And, um, that's not to say that corporate roles or anything like that aren't ideal or aren't good, or there's definitely a place for them. But for me at that season, just realized that wasn't the point. And I was, I was cross country skiing, um, in January of, it was like new year's of 2015, I guess, or 2014, 2015, right in there. Um, it's cross country skiing, Northern Wisconsin with a couple of buddies up in like a cabin, like a small, like hut cabin in the middle of winter. And just realized like the only reason I was still at Red Bull was because of the insurance and the secure paycheck. And, uh, sure. I, I grew up listening to punk rock music and I just like, I would like the 16 year old version of myself would have kicked me in the teeth if it knew that that's why I was still in a job oh, for sure. And, um, yeah. So that was kind of just started the process and I didn't end up leaving Red Bull till September of that year of 2015, but that started the process in me to say, man, that is not why I want to be in it. And I, and I have these desires to do something that gives back more in terms of what I needed. Now my role with Red Bull or anybody in a corporate role, like you're giving back a ton and there's tons of good in that. I'm not, I'm not pushing that away, but, for me right. at that season of life, that was, that was really important kind of to that transition. Did you start lining up that first client while you were at Red Bull? Yes and no. It's interesting. So my plan was actually to go do, like I was hitting my mid twenties crisis at that point is what I call it. Like I wanted to live out of my Subaru and a backpack and like not deal with anything Western civilization at all. Like I was just super burnout. I'd done 86 mm -hmm. flights a year for three years 140 Marriott nights a year, just like total grind. Um, it was just super over it. So I was actually planning on um, moving over to Eastern Europe, which is crazy. Uh, I was talking to a mission sending organization out of Atlanta that does businesses mission stuff. And we kind of had this deal, like I would trade my corporate experience and give that to them to help consult and develop what they were doing. And mm -hmm. they were giving me kind of a place to go do that. So I went over to um, I, when I left Red Bull, I think rest is really important. So I actually took like a two month sabbatical sabbatical is something you. you hear in like the, the higher education world and you hear it in like the church world, but you don't hear it in the corporate world as much. Like I never really understood the concept of that. So I literally took two months and I was just like in my Subaru mountain biking, backpacking, camping in Colorado, and then staying with friends like half the week and just doing my thing, kind of like van lifing it, but not totally. And just sure. rested and then went over to Eastern Europe with them. Um, did that trip. I was in Albania, Moldova, Ukraine, Finland, Germany, and consulting and came back and it actually didn't work out. So I didn't really have a client lined up or I didn't plan on doing consulting at all. Mm -hmm. um, I actually started driving Uber because I didn't want to like blow through my savings. And I, every job I interviewed for, I was still kind of cynical on and the nonprofit world. I really couldn't like find a space that fit that I felt really good about. Sure. Um, and I met my first client driving Uber, which is crazy. No kidding. Wow. So you get your first client through Uber and what help did this client need? So we just started talking. He was actually a gentleman who was blind um, and he was mm -hmm. helping blind people get employed at Fortune 1000 companies. They're using IT accessibility projects to employ blind people at these Fortune 1000 companies. And I'm talking to him and, you know, he didn't have that sales, corporate kind of branding, um, purpose, mission, all those kinds of things really packaged in a way at that point to really push it forward. So I was like, Hey, you know, I'm down to do this. Like if you're down, let's, let's figure this out. He didn't have money for a full-time employee. Um, I didn't need that cause I was kind of still just 
figuring out what to do with life at that point. And so I started up my LLC, uh, kind of did a 20 hour a week consulting gig at way too low of an hourly rate. Um, and did that until, you know, March of, uh, 2017 when I went full time. Could you break down the specific services you were providing for this individual? You know, it's funny. Our first piece of the puzzle was to really go out to their board. Like sales was really it, you know, like I had a ton of sales background, sales experience, but it's not just about the grind of selling. It's about how are you packaging what you do? How are you relating to the person in front of you? Are you targeting the right clients and how are you creating a sense of action in them to do something? And when you're doing that from a missional standpoint, that's a lot more challenging. So they were just getting in the, they were getting their foot in the door of all these like massive corporations, but it wasn't really like they weren't turning the key to deliverables and like to a contract and all that. So I helped with that a ton. And then we ended up kind of having some financial issues a few months later. So I accidentally kind of became fractional CFO. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm managing the books and then all the sales we did turned into actual projects. So then we're like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to PM all these projects. And that's when it kind of just became like the COO sales operations. I just kind of took a W2 full-time role then, you know, nine months in. Cause at that point I really wasn't planning on doing consulting long-term. I was looking for the right kind of like heart fit for me in a role that, you know, I was blending what I was passionate about with my skill set. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the crux of it. So think of like a COO role up to that point with them. You said you took a W2 where? With them. Yeah. So like oh, from with June them. of 2016 until probably like March of 2017, I was kind of doing this 20 and then 25 and then 30 and 35 hours a week, kind of subcontracted 1099 consulting gig. And then just realized, Hey, look, I'm on board with the mission you guys are doing. Let's just W2. I'm not really Got it. looking to do that yet. Yeah. Let's just go back a little bit here. And I'm going to talk about the, the risks you took. So you, you take two months sabbatical, which is awesome. Get some downtime, travel around the globe and starting a consulting practice. I assume you had very little overhead in this situation. You probably just need a cell phone, a laptop, and you're good to go. Is that correct? Totally. Yeah. The only, at that point, I mean, um, cell phone, laptop, yeah, is, is pretty much it. I was ready especially when you're meeting like that first client and it's kind of like, it just, it happens that way. Like, it's not like I said, Hey, I'm going to, you know, there's two ways to go into that. There's the consulting model where you say, I'm going to build this brand and this consulting thing and I'm going to go do this. And then Mm -hmm. you create your logo, create your website, and then you go out and you fish for clients. Right. Um, sometimes in my model, it's like I had the client, so it kind of happened out of necessity or at least it did until March of 2018 when the next season of that kicked off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. You did enough work with this individual that he's like, Hey, let's bring you on full time as an employee. Were you able to serve other clients at the same time? You know, I didn't really at that point have an interest in it. You know, like I hadn't, I hadn't made that shift yet to say, you know, that, that shift started to stir in me like end of 2017, early 2018, where I was like, man, what would, you know, a couple things happened. Like one was I started to recognize what equity was and I started to realize mm-hmm. like building long-term wealth wasn't sitting like sitting in one salaried job. I needed to do more than that. And I just, I, that kind of hit me upside the head. We were working on a few contracts and working on stuff in the startup world. And I was like, man, that's how you do it. It's not this like grind of trying to p- pinch off certain pennies of your paycheck every week and pay right. that now. 
that is super valuable and needed. And I'm very thankful that I have the skill set and the opportunities that have come my way to be able to do that. Cause I recognize not everybody has the opportunity to make that shift into that equity game. Um, so I'm thankful for that, but I, I just recognize that was a thing. And then I just recognize like you can't create long-term financial and time flexibility that allows you for my sake, like to deeply serve other people globally and to travel to do that. I mm -hmm. couldn't create that in a full-time job. So those recognitions just started to happen to me over late 2017, early 2018 that started to change that game a little bit. So three years, you're in this consulting position and we've talked about this in the past, but you really had a breakthrough year in your consulting practice in 2019. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Let's, let's go into that a little bit. If you could talk about what were like the aha moments or what, what really moved the needle that year? What did you change? Yeah. So March, so the, that blindness organization, if you kind of look in a timeline, I like left that March, 2018 and then started the consulting thing. And that was when launched the logo, the brand, all that stuff. Um, so throughout 2018 I was really building it, you know, um, mm -hmm. was paying myself out of savings for several months, got our first client in kind of April ish. Uh, that wasn't that big of a client yet, got another client in July and really scraped by through the end of 2018. And, um, you know, 2019 in January, I knew we were like, it was a, kind of our make it or break it year. And I actually reached out to um, someone in my network here in Denver that I respect a ton, um, had met, you know, a couple of years before and stayed in touch with a little bit of an old guy older than me um, who had a coaching practice and asked him, what, you know, if he would coach and mentor me, he'd done coaching and a little bit of consulting on his own. It was now in a corporate role. And, um, so I wrote a check that hurt, you know, like when you hire a coach or you invest in yourself, like it should hurt a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it was the best decision I could have made from our, our sales and how we were presenting ourselves and particularly, um, how I was viewing like servant heartedness in terms of, uh, the sales process and our clients and sure. even taking the clients that are good for us and not just taking everything because it was like a, a good penny out there. And the transformation of that just changed the game. We were sitting at a coffee table one day and he challenged me to put three or four proposals out there in the next 30 days that were like three times as more, as more expensive than what I'd put out before. Um, and just said, Hey, look, if you lose the client, you use the client. Like I'm just, I'm, you should go take that risk. Just put it out there. And I got like two clients way higher than I charge anything else out of that. And that was really just the, the game changer is like hiring a coach, someone who believed in me to push me along in that, to help me make those little tweaks. And we can go into details on a lot of what those tweaks were, but it was, um, it was a pretty big deal bringing his name's Brad, bringing Brad in and, and having him help with that. Sure. The one big point I want to extract here is charging what you're worth. And a lot of people are afraid to charge more because they'll feel like they'll lose their customers mm. or future prospects, right? Yeah. But it really helps you find the right customers for you. And that's exactly what it sounds like you did there. Yeah. Well, it's also the big key is, and was for me, like, what's the value I'm bringing long-term, mm -hmm. not what's the rate for what I'm doing. And those are sure. totally different things. Like if I can take an organization and bring them from a 250K of revenue to a million in 18 months, how you pay 50,000 for that. So we Absolutely. actually didn't start in our proposal process. We just say, Hey, look, like our rates are not $50,000, but if you were going to write a $50,000 check tomorrow to bring our organization in for strategy work and consulting and coaching, what would you want to have changed a year from now to make that worth it? 
we start mm-hmm. to change the conversation on the front end with them where they're not even thinking about, well, okay, you're putting 40 hours in and how are you going to track those hours? Is that a shared Google sheet? Like we just stay away from that. And I think yep. that's a game changer for anybody doing that kind of thing. I love it. You're, you're talking like a real consultant, somebody who knows what they're doing. You immediately arrive on the value for them. Speak to that and all the minutia of like hours and how much time it's going to take and everything like that. It's just all low level. Um, I would call it consulting 101 that people make the mistake of doing. Whereas you're, you're, it sounds like you're almost immediate aligned with the mission of their business and let's drive towards that yeah totally and we've we've learned like i put a clause in our contracts that says hey look like we don't do anything hourly and i explained this to them before we get into the contract but i'm like i'm basing this on like a 50 hour engagement over six to nine months and if we go Mm. more than 20 percent above that let's have a conversation. And that just protects us from, you know, we, we do things on a deliverable basis or like, here's the, how many strategy meetings we're going to have, sure. here's we're going to focus on. And, and I, you know, if I go, there's clients who've gone 80 hours instead of 50 and, you know, it just, it all balances out generally. So I don't make a big deal out of it, but we put that clause in there just to make sure that no one can take advantage of that. However, if you're onboarding the right clients with the right missional fit and you, everything just makes sense with each other, you're not going to run into those issues because you're either going right. to want to work harder for them and provide the best possible service because you care or yep. you're just so much on the same page that you don't even like notice, you know? Sure. And what size businesses are you targeting at this point? Yeah, they've traditionally been, so about 60%, so our, our mission, I'll start with our mission statement. It's, it's um, helping servant hearted organizations and individuals to mm-hmm. scale effectively and navigate the tension where mission and profit collide. So we're working with anybody who's a servant hearted organization or individual. Somebody cares about others, whether that's a for-profit CEO that wants to deliver for their clients really well and do that, or it's a um, nonprofit that's doing that. And our sweet spot is social enterprise where those things meet. Um, So that's kind of our, you know, like what we're doing now. Traditionally, our clients have been under 2 million. Um, Our consulting model and what we do and how we serve clients, and we've had coaching clients that are, you know, executives at much bigger organizations. But part of the reason for that is... I enjoy being able to go in and have a massive change and work with a, a team of you know, 10 or less people and change the culture and, and get really intimate with everybody. When we get into the you know, 9, 12, 18 month sales cycle and I'm jumping mm-hmm. through hoops and it's more of a game and it's an RFP process with 10 other people and then you've got a bunch of corporate red tape and stuff. For me personally, I just don't have as much fun with that because I've done it at different times. Oh, sure. I love kind of the under 2 million stage where we can just do a ton of damage and see a lot of growth and change people's lives really quickly. Yeah. I, with all my experience in the corporate world, it's like you, you can move the needle a little bit, but there's so much red tape. So let's talk about that. See your target is brilliant because there's a proof of concept in whatever product or service they're providing, especially if they're up to 2 million a year in revenue but there's not a huge board of directors or totally. all the layers of the C-suite, presidents, oh. VPs, all that noise, get it all out of the way. You're probably communicating directly with the owner or yep. the president of the business, right? Yeah, pretty much all the time. That's who we're communicating with. And, yep. you know, we, like I said, we have executive coaching clients that are in the C-suite and we're navigating that with them, but that's a little different, you know, because my goal is I'm focused on them as a human in front of me personally and professionally. I'm not focused on, 
I don't have to get that CIO to agree with the CHRO so that I can <laughs> prove someone that I was worth my time. And then everyone forgets about it in 12 months and we're yes. like, okay, well, whatever, who knows? <laughs> Let's take a quick commercial break. Have you ever lost money in the stock market? Have you ever listened to someone you know, heard a comment online, or tried to follow a trend and still ended up losing money? If so, you're not alone. A lot of people lose money in the stock market because they make decisions based on emotions. What if you could completely remove emotions from investing? What if you could make consistent returns in the stock market based solely on logic? And what if there's a software that handled that logic for you? I would like to introduce Ticker. Ticker makes investing easier smarter, and faster. Before Ticker launched, it was back-tested through the 2008 recession. Here are those surprising results. In 2008, the market dropped by 38%. Ticker was up 24%. In 2009, the market went up by 23%. Ticker was up 72%. And in 2010, the market went up by 12%. Ticker was up 96%. Ticker allows you to find great investments before they become mainstream news. It helps you understand when to buy and when to sell, and it clearly defines why a stock is a great investment, providing you with the confidence to make a great decision. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R dot pro. Again, ticker.pro. Let's talk about the economics a little bit here. Do you set up your pricing structure so it's like, the same monthly payment over a duration, like three months or six months? Yeah, it's funny. We actually don't really do any monthly stuff. We do very little. Um, okay. Now that's been a piece that I've toyed with off and on for the past, you know, several months. When we first started, I took the fractional COO model. We were like, look, you want to hire a hundred, mm-hmm. 150K a year executive, but you don't have the budget for it yet. Hire me for five, 10, 15, 20 hours a month to be your COO. And I realized mm-hmm. a few things. One was... I couldn't, I, I always over like three to six months, I started to look more like an employee than an advisor. And that wasn't what I wanted. I started to do more work. Um, that was mundane. The longer it went on. So I'd work, start with strategy, infrastructure, building the tools, systems, processes, everything to help and serve them. And then I'd start to look more like an employee that was just mundane using those systems. <laughs> and right. for me personally, I just recognized I wasn't having fun doing that. And I don't want to build a business around what I'm not going to have fun or enjoy doing because I'm not going to perform at a high level and it's going to be a bad product and I'm going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And I started this so that I wasn't miserable. So why would I do that? But then the other most important thing is I couldn't scale that. There's only a certain amount of hours in a week that I can work in only a certain, uh, like realistically hourly rate you can charge. Like if you're Deloitte, you're charging like 650 bucks uh, an hour for a consultant. I'm not going to be doing that. So I'm somewhere in between a hundred and probably 300. So you do the okay. math, like what, you know, in that model, you do the math, like what you take 200 times, you know, mm-hmm. 2,080 working hours in a year, if you want to work full time and it doesn't look great. You're like, well, why don't I just get a corporate job and not have the stress of doing sales? So <laughs> we moved away from that because that just didn't help us scale. And that's when we shifted to this value model that said, look, let's do this. So we, we do our pricing. Um, it's kind of slightly on an hourly rate, but it's a really blended margin hourly rate. Um, again, looking at the value. So what we said was, you know, here's a couple different program models, you know, of, of strategic planning. So what I do is I have a spreadsheet. I will basically, here's, you know, we have a pro on our website. We have a flow chart of our consulting model from analysis all the way through and strategy work. I'll basically ask a client, I'll say, look, our engagements are anywhere from 5,000 to $30,000 for a 
you know, a six to nine month engagement generally, mm-hmm. where do you kind of land? And I'll say, you know, a 5,000 obviously would look a lot smaller, but for you guys and the size of client you are, I don't really think it's going to be more than 15 K. And they'll usually say, I don't know, our budget's like seven to 12. So then I'll go back and bring them three options. I'll say, Hey, let me bring you an option that's seven, that's, you know, nine and that's 12 and let's talk through them and then you can mix and match. And I put it into a spreadsheet and we actually do a collaborative proposal where we're mixing and matching all those pieces. Smart. Um, And I, and so basically like our sales cycle is we meet the client, we talk to them, we get to know them, we understand how to serve them. We do a a work share where we share past client examples. We have a conversation um, around that proposal the first time and then we Mm -hmm. review it a fourth time and, and go. And really that's not that long of a sales cycle. And that's what I love about it. Like if you, if it's a good fit and you're a good partner and everyone's happy, like, let's just do it. You know, let's not, um, let's not just wait 12 months for 15 people to decide. So that's kind of how we've done our pricing model and mm-hmm. all of that. And I feel like I've just gotten into a stride of that this year. Um, I hated writing proposals and now it's super easy. Cause it's like a, it's a copy and paste with intentionality built into it. Yeah. And you're doing something I've never heard of before is you're creating a collaborative experience for your proposal. Because in my day, it's always been understand what they want, present the proposal, and then negotiate. And that's it. Repeat, repeat. Whereas you're really engaged. I, I love that. Your, your conversion has got to be significantly higher than if you were to just send a proposal and then wait for a response. Right. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's just, um, it's just better, right? Like nobody loves to negotiate. Well, okay. We, some of us love to negotiate. Like you go to like a market somewhere, a flea market, like it can be fun to negotiate, but no one, sure, no one loves it. that process. No, I, <laughs> and, I would agree. In the business realm, like no one loves yeah. the stress of it, the back and forth. And do you really want to start an intimate coaching, consulting strategy relationship on a negotiation that doesn't feel good for everybody? Like, no kidding. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't start a relationship or a marriage like, Hey, okay. So you're going to bring this and I'm going to bring this. We get on that. Yeah. Okay. Here's the rate. Okay, cool. Okay. Let's go get happily married. Like it doesn't work like that. Right. So if we can find a better way to do that, that's ideal. And I don't have it all figured out though, Sean. Like I just, <laughs> we fumble over it. We're still figuring it out and trying to just be better and serve people well, but it's not all figured out. No, I, I totally get what you're doing. You're really leading with value first before anything else. It's not about, you know, making money off the client or, or trying to compress as many dollars in an hour as possible. It's, it's really filling their need and not only with the services, but with a budget that fits their budget. Yeah. Um, that's, that's awesome. I think as you continue to do that, it's going to get more and more refined and easier to do. And you might even get a lot of uh, referrals that way too, just from other businesses that find out how you work. Um, I want to ask about the billing structure. I know a lot of businesses don't like surprises, right? <laughs> Nobody mm-hmm. likes a surprise invoice. So, so do you like set up the payment? Let's say it's it's a $12,000 project spread over six months. Do you you know charge them $2,000 a month? So they have a budget, they know they're expending that month or how do you do that? Yeah, we actually build a full amount up front, which sounds crazy. Um, I have a handful of uh, mentors um, in the coaching and consulting world that I've talked to kind of as I just got going in this and just got to know. And Mm -hmm. um, they all encouraged me to charge up front. I was like, you're crazy. Like at the beginning, I was like, you think, you know, I'd rather get $10,000 over six months than $10,000 up front. Um, But what I 
I realized a couple things and them coaching me is, is one, when a client signs on, like I'm committing to them. So I'm going to turn away other business that would jeopardize my ability to perform at a high level and serve them well. Mm-hmm. And if I'm doing that, there needs to be some sort of upfront engagement. If it's a month over month and you do that, like, let's say, you know, I'm bringing on a business for the next 12 months and then I get 10 of their proposals and I turn five away because I recognize I've already committed to this business. Well, mm-hmm. if they just get out of the contract, you know, at six months into that 12 months, now I've turned away other business. There's really no way for me to know. And then you're always playing this game of like, well, should I bring on that extra client and push myself too far? Where is that upfront piece is there? So that's kind of reason Smart. one why we do that. Reason two is I said earlier that check that was really hard for me to write at the beginning of 2019 that changed my business. When you have to write that check and make an investment in yourself, you're going to get way more out of it. You know, um, mm-hmm. if, you, if people on New Year's Eve when they or New Year's when they did a resolution of like get fit in the year, if yeah. they had to sign up for a year, like write a check for a year at a gym instead of just month by month, I guarantee they'd hold their resolution a lot faster and a lot longer because they have to commit to it. Yes. And you, it's not that I don't want to work with people that aren't willing to commit and make that investment in themselves because I do. And there's scenarios where we've worked around them to support them. But I also, I really only want to work with people that are ready to make that commitment and jump off that deep end because that's when real deep change in them personally mm-hmm. and professionally happens is when you're willing to take that risk and you're willing to go that next level. Um, so those are some reasons, you know, you're in coaching. We talk about the gremlin uh, mm-hmm. and that's like, you know, you, you start to, we'll go back to like the losing weight example. The first three weeks you lose, like you're trying to lose 50 pounds and you lose like 20 pounds in the first three weeks. And then it takes six months to lose the next 30. Um, right. You hit that point in coaching and consulting engagements as well, where you do a ton of upfront stuff, honeymoon phase, and then you kind of get into a grind and it's like, yeah, you got to wait, you got to get this going. You got to implement this stuff. You're going to see the change. Well, if they have the ability to just jump out because they don't understand that, that's just setting yourself up to not be able to do that because it's an unrealistic expectation to be able to change their whole world overnight. So those are just kind of things I've learned and why we do that. Now, if a client says, Hey, we really want to bring you on. Can we split this over like two months? It's a little bit easier on cash flow. We'll obviously work with them because we want to serve them well, but it's a, it's a conversation at that point. And you can usually tell when it's, they're trying to split it up monthly to kind of, gain a win or it's like, Hey, there's a, like a deep heart engagement mm-hmm. happening there. That's better. That's really smart. You, you really prove upfront who's all in on this. They really want to make the change. So you get the upfront payment. I've never, never seen anybody do that before and you're pulling it off. So well done. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's good. I'd say our, you know, sales is a little more stressful at times mm-hmm. because we're not cutting corners, but we rarely have a bad client and I'm very thankful for that. And I think some of these pieces that I'm sharing with you are, are why, you know, and that's taken me years to build up to that point. We've taken the quick, quick win clients a few times and that's gotten us through cash flow. And I don't think that was their own choice, but we've matured, I guess, in in how we do that. That's smart. So I want to make a transition here to the leveraged income model um, which is a very similar business model to what you're doing now. You're, you're a consultant, you're charging businesses, but let's talk about, you've got a nutrition product business that you're part ownership in. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the, the organization is called Flow Formulas. Um, so we're mm-hmm. a hydration product for endurance athletes. And basically I had a friend through our church here and his sister, he was doing his like biochem degree at Colorado School of Mines. 
phenomenally smart dude and he raced mountain bikes at a pretty significant like high competitive level and then his sister uh competed in triathlons at a pretty high level and um she was she's a nutrition a sports nutritionist and she found out she was corn free gluten free realized there weren't products on the market they started doing a ton of research to like sports science journals and created this product called flow formulas um that was there and and so through talking to them and realizing what they're doing they started to grow they started to sell a little and you know i have kind of that business background they both have the science side so i said hey like let's create some sort of contract where I'm able to provide a normal consulting engagement to you guys um, where we, you know, I'm helping with strategy. I'm helping with uh, financial modeling and org chart stuff and just every piece of the puzzle that we normally do for consulting and coaching. Um, but let's trade for sweat equity because I race mountain bikes mm -hmm. as well. And I, you know, I was, I was all in on this product. I have the Red Bull background. It was just like a good fit all around. For sure. One of those. Um, and I personally would like to build a portfolio of some of those projects over the next handful of years when it's something, you know, I'm going to Angel Fire, New Mexico to ride downhill in a couple of weeks. And it's essentially a business trip because it, it just, when you can find the place where your passion and your business life overlap or your professional life overlap, like that's a huge win. Um, so I just kind of always have my ears open for those opportunities. And that was one of them. And um, we're growing. I can tell you more. I'm, I'm sure you have a couple of questions on that of what I've said, but we're growing a lot and it's been really cool. And I've learned a lot of what I would never do again and what I would definitely do again in the process of it. Sure. Well, let's, let's go into that a little bit. So what mistakes did you make? You know, when we kind of came on, it wasn't Ryan's going to provide this for six months and it's going to translate to X amount of equity, or it's not going to, it's, it wasn't a profit sharing model. It was a, it was a straight equity model. Okay. Um, so there's just some stuff in how I would formulate a contract in the future. Now, uh, Hannah and Caleb, these other two involved are friends and we've had our disagreements and differences. And I actually like, I'm really, I'm really like stoked about where our relationship has gone as we've gone through that. It's been really, really cool. Um, how we're all on the same page now and working together on it. But I think, uh, anybody else, a uh, different type of business relationship or something like I would have just preferred a much firmed up contract where, I had the ability six months in or 12 months in to say, Hey, look, I don't like the way this is going. I would like to pull out, you know, I'll take this equity. So for, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to take 10% equity in an organization and it's, you know, say, Hey, I'm going to provide these services at this kind of guardrails or parameters for the next two years. And if I provide more than that, great, but I'm not gonna, I'm hopefully will, but I'm not obligated to. And if I decide a year from now to pull out, I will just take 50% of that equity because I've been part of this for half the time. And it, it's hard to make it perfectly lined up like that, but I would be more cognizant of how to structure the engagement mm -hmm. that way. Um, just so that I had those opportunities to pull out. Cause there's been times where I was like, not necessarily with this, but I could see in other ones where it's like, man, I, I've already invested, you know, a hundred hours in this thing and it's not going to pay off for a long time and it might never. And I kind of feel like I've now got to keep pushing it along because I want to see you end up with this like weird codependent relationship almost with the engagement as opposed to being able to just be like, you know what, I'm going to cut my losses and go. That can be difficult, like coming into a business and offering sweat equity in exchange for um, equity or actual ownership in the business. Um, it's always a little gray area. It's hard to like come to a definitive, like this is the line, this is your share, this is your share, this is, it's really difficult. So props to you for navigating this terrain your first time through. And I'm sure as you do this more, um, you're going to get better at it. And um, it's, it's a great business model because it's as this business grows, you're winning, you're, yeah. you're collecting a residual income. So, so let's go into the 
product a little bit. So can you talk about how is the product sold or packaged? It's packaged. We've got single serve packets, uh, two, two sizes, and then we've got kind of big bags with a scoop that you would kind of like a protein powder. Sure. Um, so that's packaging. That's how we got that going. Um, how it's sold is, uh, so lot, so coming from the Red Bull world, like I know brick and mortar sales. Now I know e-commerce very well, but mm-hmm. brick and mortar, we wanted to go to the grassroots, build it up from the ground, Colorado, super cool brand. So we started hitting up bike shops and, um, different running stores and talking to them about selling and getting into stores and kind of doing that grassroots thing. We'd reach out to race organizers, all that. And we just tanked that strategy in 20 would have been 2018 um, mm. or I guess no 2019. So we just kind of take that strategy. It did not really go well. Like um, a lot of bike shop owners are just uh, really struggling with inventory and cash flow, and um, they're not the fastest at responding to emails and texts. And it was just it was a ton of runaround work for very little uh, money. And so then we we ended up kind of having a friend who climbed uh, Kilimanjaro using our product, posted on YouTube. He had like 20,000 subscribers. And all of a sudden we had a thousand dollars of sales in a week, which was more than we'd almost done all year. Uh, well, not more than it was a little less, but you get the picture. Like it was a lot. Right. And, um, that took us off. We're like, wow, there's something here. We didn't even pay for this. So we got a couple of YouTube influencers to start posting uh, about us and free marketing that way. Send them some free product do that trade. And it just blew up. And now we're, you know, four X already this year, what we did last year, we're growing super fast. We're, um, out of almost out of product right now because they're switching manufacturers and it's crazy and um, so it's been really cool to kind of for myself to be humbled as a marketing digital marketing expert to see some different things work that you might not expect mm-hmm. and that always happens in business and it's a it was a cool learning experience. Before we get into the distribution strategy you were just alluding to there, how much do you charge for the products retail? Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, three ninety nine for the small single serve, four ninety nine for the other one, and then it's thirty nine ninety nine for a big bag, which is almost double most of our competitors, uh, wow. which is intentional. Um, we mm-hmm. really believe our product is like far superior. Um, it's the only product that's gluten free. Um, the you would have to use three to five of other products to get the performance output that you get from one of ours. So we just did a lot of that math and I came from Red Bull, right? And our strategy at yep. Red Bull was we're the premium product and monster energy drink was the less premium and that's fine, but you almost have to price yourself in as a premium product on purpose. You can always lower your price. It's really easy to lower your price. It's not easy to increase your price in a, right. in a consumer packaged good business sense. So that was um as kind of like when, as I kind of came in and started consulting and doing strategy, we we're looking at pricing and profitability models. That was a pretty intentional choice to keep the pricing. There. Let's take a quick commercial break. Do you wish you would have bought some stocks earlier? Imagine buying Amazon for $125 in 2010. Today, Amazon is over $2,500. Imagine buying Facebook for $25 in 2013. Today, Facebook is over $200. Imagine buying Netflix for $60 in 2014. Today, Netflix is over $400. Do you feel like you find out about great stocks too late? What if you could find great stocks before they become mainstream news? And what if there's a software that found those stocks for you? With Ticker, you can find great stocks before what feels like the rest of the world finds out. Does this sound too good to be true? Check this out. Ticker was back-tested from 1999 through 2019 and has proven to beat the market every year. The lowest return was 10%, and the highest return was 96%. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. 
That's tykr.pro. Again, ticker.pro. I really like your price points there. That's uh, very accessible. Sounds like a great product. Um, and let's dive into this distribution strategy. So you started with the bike shops, which would have been my first thought with selling, you know, some kind of supplement like this, get it in the store so people can just buy a point of sale yeah. and that didn't work. So then you move to a market that's growing significantly faster, which is influencers. You mm-hmm. sold this through an influencer and did significantly better than your traditional route of distribution, you could say. I mean, the whole point of doing the shop model is word of mouth, right? That's that's right. the point of doing like a grassroots, build it up organically model. It takes longer, much more worth it because you're not deteriorating your brand by just pumping it out there digitally and making right. it look like something it isn't, right? It's going to last longer that way. Like it, everybody would want an organically built brand. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's just what I thought would be best. And, but the, the flip side of that is everybody who buys our product online is going out on a ride most of the time with friends. And if they love the product, they're going to talk about it. And that's, I think what's happened is, you know, at first with the YouTube influencers, we saw they'd post a video and we'd get like $2,000 of sales in a week. And then it would kind of trickle. And then the next week or two later, they'd, post another video. Now it's pretty steady. Like we still see the uptick, but it's, it's much more steady because we're getting repeat customers and they're telling people about it. And we're not seeing those, mm-hmm. those big upticks and we're holding those levels. And that part of that is a testament to the product working well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Do you have an affiliate payment model for these influencers? Like they can receive an affiliate fee for everything they sell? Yeah. I think the affiliate model is awesome. I know you're doing that uh, or thinking about Mm -hmm. doing a ticker to some degree. I I think it's awesome. We don't have that um, yet. Um, Partially because it's, we're selling so many, so much product that tracking it is a nightmare and paying Mm -hmm. to track is a nightmare. So we're basically doing like an ambassador discount. Um, We have a few pro athletes that we will provide free product to. Uh, We've set up, you know, different kind of contracts that say, hey, you need to post about us this many times or whatever if we're going to do this. Um, And that's after they've tried the product and naturally kind of come to us wanting to do that. Um, But, you know, that's really, it's been more of a discount on the product model than anything else. All right. This is, I mean, we could go on for uh, probably hours talking about all the different pros and cons and, and wins and losses through this leveraged income model. I think it's a brilliant model. You've got a supplement. It's got a very accessible price point and you're selling through uh, influencers. And I think the more influencers you bring on and the better prepared you are to scale from a production standpoint, mm-hmm. I think you guys are going to be in a great position to totally. really see this thing take off. Yeah. And it's cool. Cause it's a, it's, it's a, it's not my only thing, right? When you're a startup founder and that's your only source of income, it's like make it or break it. But totally. for me, it's yep. nice having that as like a, a side hustle thing. That's not my monthly income providing for our family. Mm-hmm. It's this other investment strategy that's going long-term. And for me, the cool part about that is I don't need capital to do it. I need my skill set. And I think a lot of people Smart. are like, oh, I'd love to invest. I'd love to you know, provide capital and get equity and invest and grow and do all these, you know, famous people have done, but I don't have the money to do that. Well, a lot of times you have a skill and you have something. And if you can negotiate the sweat equity space in a good way, or you have a product or a friend with one and you can do that on the side, I think it's really beneficial way to do it. Brilliant. Easy to get started, low expenditure, 
um, low uh, barrier to entry on your point, I, I think that's a great business model. Smart yeah. choice. Yeah. So. Thanks, man. It's fun. So let's get into the last part of our episode. It's called the rapid fire round. Right. And what I'm going to do is ask a question. If you could answer each within 15 seconds or less, you ready? Oh man. Okay. 15 seconds. All right. I got it. <laughs> All right. Favorite podcast. Um, and there's been, it's, it's changed by the season. I've got 15 seconds. I, I love this podcast. It's called labeled tooth and nail records, early mid two thousands, huge, hardcore punk label, kind of a Christian record label, but no one really knew it. Awesome stuff. Telling the stories of all the bands. It's been a really cool podcast. I've loved. Sounds very interesting actually. Yeah. All right. What is the recent book you read and would recommend? Oh man. Read and would recommend recently. Um, I'm, I'm turning over here and looking at um, what I've been working on, you know, I'm reading this cool book. Uh, it's called, um, it's called the church. It's by a pastor named Mark Dever out of, uh, DC. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a church on Capitol Hill and it's just really cool, cool concept of, of what that looks like. Um, how to think about it a little bit differently. All right. Favorite movie, uh, man, Lord of the Rings series. It's, uh, gets me every time. It's like, you can't go I, wrong. I would live in middle earth any day of the week if I could do it. <laughs> Awesome. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> the thought that went into those books, the creativity, uh, <sighs> hats off to Tolkien. It, uh, slight side note, uh, the battle for middle earth, amazing book. This woman wrote, uh, blending the theological deconstruction of the Lord of the Rings. And there's another book called the, uh, the Hobbit. What is it? A Hobbit, a wardrobe and a great, uh, great war talking about world war one and Tolkien and CS Lewis, who are close friends that wrote Narnia and Lord of the Rings, their experience in world war one and how it played out in that kind of industrialism wow. era of war in both of those books and kind of deconstructing all the philosophical parts of it. Amazing. And I'm showing myself to be a total nerd right now, which I'm okay with. I'm sold. <laughs> I'll send it to you. It's a great book. Awesome. Favorite food, man, a good ribeye steak on the grill. How many hours do you work per week? So we've been pretty intentionally made personal, professional, everything, service, life blended. So I would say I work probably 35 to 55 hours a week. Um, sure. But it's not, it's not all work in a sense, but it is. You get that. It sounds balanced and it sounds like you're doing what you love for a living, which really matters most. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to answer that question actually, which I guess mm-hmm. is a good thing. How many hours of sleep do you get each night? We have an 11 month old. So, uh, good luck. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> good enough. Right. I think it's really important to get eight hours of sleep. Uh, less, less than like six hours of sleep studies have shown you're essentially drunk. Um, like mm. essentially the same mental performance as a, as a 0.08 blood alcohol concentration level. So I actually really have studied sleep a lot and believe you need sleep to function at a high level and serve people well. Wow. Interesting stat. Yeah, it's crazy. All right. Last question here. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say? Man, I would just kind of go back to myself in college and high school and just try to instill a little bit more humility. I think that's just something we grow in over Mm -hmm. our life. And when I'm 60, I'll say the same thing about, myself on this podcast right now. Cause I think that's just wisdom and age, but sure. um, I think just growing in humility is really important and how you just show up and care for the people around you. That's great. I agree. All right, Ryan, thanks for joining me today. 
That's a wrap. And last question for you, where can people reach you? Yeah, so check out our organization, uh, www.feastoverfamine.org. You can find our podcast on there. You can find uh, a little bit more of the work we're doing, impact investment projects in Africa and Ukraine and the US and Denver and all over the place. Um, Learn a little bit more. Um, I'm obviously on LinkedIn. We've got a Facebook page, Instagram, all that stuff. And uh, yeah, we've got contact info on the website. So if you want to connect or chat, just hop on there, fill out the form and we'll get in touch. Awesome. All right, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thanks for listening to the Payback Time Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please provide a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. If you'd like to hear an interview from someone specific, please make a comment on the Payback Time Facebook page. If you're interested in becoming an affiliate and earning 30% reoccurring commission for simply sharing Ticker, visit ticker.pro slash affiliates. Remember, this show is for entertainment purposes only. If you heard any stock mentioned on this podcast episode, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is copyright protected by Payback Time. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.